Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast is about Israel, which has been rocked by many weeks of anti-government protests. The protesters argue that judicial reforms proposed by the Netanyahu government threaten the country's democracy. Some are calling this Israel's biggest internal crisis since the foundation of the state in 1948. My guest this week is Nadav Ayal, a prominent Israeli journalist and author. So, is Israeli democracy really in danger? The protesters who've been flooding Israeli streets show no signs of backing off. But neither does the government, which is pressing ahead with its plans to allow the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, to overrule the Supreme Court. Efforts by the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, to broker an agreement have so far got nowhere. Meanwhile, the Palestinian territories are suffering from an upsurge in violence and killing. Between the beginning of this year and early this month, Israeli forces had killed 65 Palestinians and Palestinians had killed 13 Israelis. Tonight, Israeli forces taking their hunt for Palestinian militants deep into the occupied West Bank killing at least six Palestinian men during a raid on a refugee camp in the northern city of Jenin. Some connect the upsurge in violence to the inclusion of far-right ministers in the Netanyahu coalition government, one of whom, Bezail Smotrich, caused outrage by calling upon the Israeli state to wipe out a Palestinian town involved in the violence. He's since apologised for those comments. I began my conversation with Nadav Ayal by focusing on the internal turmoil in Israel. What are the origins of Netanyahu's judicial reforms and why are they so controversial? So the Netanyahu government is trying a complete overhaul of our judicial system. So in Israel, like in most democracies and unlike in the UK, the Supreme Court can invalidate laws passed by the Knesset, by the parliament. And not only the Supreme Court can do that, actually every court can do that. They do this very conservatively, but they do hold this power. And also, for instance, in Israel, much like in the UK, there is the idea of a civil service of legal advisors within the ministries. And these legal advisors are independent. They are not necessarily nominated by the minister and they don't owe him anything. They answer to the attorney general of the country. And one of the attempts of this government is to change this institution in a way in which these legal advisors will actually be people brought in by the ministers. Another clause will mean that the Supreme Court will be limited in the way that it addresses the reasonability of decisions made by elected officials. In Israel, in many instances, the Supreme Court will say, that a decision by, it can be an elected official or an unelected official, 
of the executive branch is unreasonable and will invalidate that decision and deem it illegal because of that. The point of the Netanyahu government is changing this equation in a way that will make the executive branch and maybe parliament, although not sure, much more powerful than they are today. So I guess the Netanyahu government will argue, well, we're making Israel more democratic because it's more responsive to the elected government and not the unelected judiciary. But that is not an argument accepted by the opposition. Why did they say that this is such a threat to Israeli democracy? And how big? Give us a sense of the movement against this. So indeed, the Netanyahu government says that this would make Israel more democratic, and they will use the idea of the decision of the majority and their desire to have an influence on government and policies. They will argue that the courts are involved in every decision in the country and that this should be stopped, this judicial activism. But to that point, it's not only about opposition resisting what the government is doing. Almost every legal scholar in this country, almost every economist of any sort of stature in this country will oppose what the government is trying to do. Every expert in the field of either international relations or uh, political science would say that what they are doing right now is a, a populist grab of power. So it's not only about political opposition. It's not only about right and left. Rightist figures like the former president, Ruven Rivlin, who I interviewed, or Gideon Saar, a partner of Benjamin Netanyahu for many years and a member of the Likud, they all resist these kinds of reforms because they say that this is, in actuality, a regime change. And this is the expression used here in Israel. Not reforms, but a regime change or even a judicial coup made by the majority in order to grab power away and not give the Israelis the protections in law that they are entitled to, and the protections, of course, to minorities, both political minorities, religious minorities, and others. And the support that the government is getting right now is rather limited in comparison to the way that people are reacting in the streets. We are seeing hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the streets, mostly on weekends, demonstrating against these reforms, arguing that they are making Israel an authoritarian regime. And what we're also seeing is that the country's elites, both in the defense apparatus, former generals, former chiefs of staff, former heads of the Shabak, the Israeli secret service, former heads of the Mossad, everywhere that you look at, the Israeli Academy of Science, Israeli universities, of course, the high-tech sector that is funding a lot of these activities and is in the streets in a way that we've never seen before. And I should explain that for Israeli economy, high-tech is, of course, the main driver of the export-import economy. Everyone is recruited to try and stop these reforms from happening. But of course, the government is in power. And I should say that about 40% of Israelis at least support these reforms and support the government. So it's a sort of classic, as you describe it, elite versus populist confrontation. How does the Netanyahu government feel about the fact that it seems to have, by your description, lost the support of 
the country's elite. Does it bother them? Do you think they're going to try and push on through? And can they? Well, Gideon, they lost the elite support a long time ago. It's not about only the elites. It's also about those people who are in the streets. And these people are not necessarily part of the elite. This is the Israeli middle class that they have lost with these reforms. So Netanyahu is having a sort of a guerrilla war against the Israeli elites for many years. But there were understandings. For instance, the Israeli Air Force pilots continue to serve in the Air Force, the most strategic of all the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces branches. Although this is the case, now these people are saying, we're going to sign off. Israel has a reserve army. You need to have these people who volunteer, to a large extent volunteer, to reserve service much and well beyond their legal obligation. And what we're seeing now is that these people, Air Force pilots is just one example that I'm giving because it's so crucial, but these people are saying, not in my name. We're not willing to have this country change its structure, its democratic structure, and become a sort of a Hungary or even Poland and remain in our position in which we invest so much in this country. And this is being said not only by Air Force pilots, but also by the tech sector. People from the tech sector, leaders of unicorns and others, have said that they'll push their money outside of Israel if this continues. And they have started moving funds outside of Israel. They're saying that this is not a political protest. They're saying that they are protecting the money invested by investors because you can't trust the government if it becomes a country in which the judicial branch doesn't control the checks and balances that you would want them to control in a democratic state. So the stakes are incredibly high for Netanyahu. Why, given all this opposition, is he determined to press ahead? I mean, some see a personal motivation because, after all, he is currently on trial, or he was, for corruption. So Netanyahu is on trial for corruption charges, severe corruption charges. And I should note that Netanyahu himself, until a few years ago, underlined his support for the independence of the judicial branch. So many Israelis will tell you, Gideon, that the only thing that changed here is that he himself is facing corruption charges. And because of that, he simply wants to make sure that he will never, ever find himself in a position in which the Supreme Court holds a verdict against him. In other words, if these changes go through, the coalition will have full control of nomination of all judges in Israel, beginning, you know, with the lowest level to the Supreme Court. And the meaning of that, of course, is that the man who is standing on trial for corruption will theoretically have the ability to nominate the judges that ultimately, when it comes to the Supreme Court, will decide his case. So many would say it's personal, it's about the corruption charges. But there is something bigger happening here. And this something is, of course, a populist wave. We're seeing this populist wave saying, we want our opinion heard. We've been electing right-wing politicians, but we're not getting a right-wing policy because these judges who are part of the Israeli elite are preventing the right-wing governments from implementing their policies 
And because of that, we need to take control of the judicial branch that is not elected and make sure that they focus on keeping and observing the law and not trying to refurbish policies of the government, change and morph them into something that they are not. When you say right-wing policies, what specifically right-wing policies do they feel are being blocked by the courts? And are we talking essentially about much harsher treatment of the Palestinians, or is it a whole range of issues? That's an excellent question, because when you ask these right-wing politicians, what do you want to do that the courts prevent you of doing right now, the answers are rather personal. For instance, the nomination of Arya Deri, a former minister convicted for corruption charges as a minister in this government. The courts in Israel have a verdict saying specifically that a man with this history cannot be nominated to specific positions. They want to change that. Or, for instance, elements that indeed have something to do with the West Bank and with Israeli occupation. I'll just give you one example. A few years ago, I interviewed an Israeli politician, a young aspiring politician, and during the interview in TV, he accused the Supreme Court that they are responsible, the judges are responsible for the deaths of Israelis that were murdered by Palestinian terrorists, by Hamas, in the Gaza Strip. Why? Because the Supreme Court did not allow the IDF to demolish a few houses near the place that these Israelis were killed. So his conclusion was that the Supreme Court judges were responsible for the deaths of these Israelis because they didn't allow the IDF to do what it wanted to do in order to prevent such a terror activity to ever occur. Of course, his argument was completely false factually, but I'm bringing this story because it exemplifies the arguments that they are making. They are saying that the courts are holding back the IDF from winning against Palestinian terror sometimes, or they are saying that the courts are holding back the government, for instance, from having more settlement activity in the West Bank. In other words, the Israeli Supreme Court is one of the most important checks and balances for Israel's rule of law. And by proxy, it's one of the most important checks and balances on Israel's power in the region. And the way that it employs its rather immense power, both in the sovereign state of Israel and in the West Bank. But of course, at the moment... There is an escalation of violence in the West Bank. I think 65 Palestinians killed by early March, 13 Israelis. And many people associate that with a radicalization that is already taking place because the new coalition government includes far-right figures like uh, Mr. Smotrich, Mr. Ben Gavir, who you know many Israelis would have regarded as totally unacceptable before, but who are now in the government. Yes, that's absolutely true. We have here a collision of sorts, of many trends within Israeli society. One of them is purely populist, the idea that the elites rule the country and not the people. And this is an idea that Mr. Netanyahu has brought to Israeli politics many years ago. 
And other elements are purely nationalist and far-right. And we have seen the pogrom in Khawara in the West Bank by settlers after a terror attack there in which two settlers were murdered and the way that they tried to burn down as many houses in that village in which that terror attack happened in order to revenge the deaths of their friends. Now, I'm using the term pogrom, Gideon, because the IDF general responsible for the West Bank used himself the term pogrom to describe what happened in Khawara, a pogrom made by Israeli settlers. And then afterwards, the Israeli finance minister, Mr. Smotrich, that you just mentioned, was asked about Khawara, and he said that he thinks that Khawara should be erased from the face of the earth. But it shouldn't be done by individuals, it should be done by the state of Israel. Now, what he said is such an extreme, vicious statement. It was condemned almost everywhere around the political spectrum, and he needed to take these words back. But you can understand that these people are enemies of Israeli liberal democracy, and they are taking their inspiration from places like Hungary. And you're seeing that with the way that it's being transformed by their supporters in the media that supports the government, the way that they talk about Viktor Orban, the way that they talk about a non-liberal democracy. So these far-right figures are on a march to transform Israel to something that it is not at the moment. And in that sense, Netanyahu is very handy for them. He is using them to stay in power, And of course, maybe make sure that he won't get a guilty verdict against him in these criminal offenses. But they are using him in order to implement their bigger project of the larger state of Israel. And of course, transforming a very vibrant democracy in which people right now are fighting for their rights in the streets to a traditionalist non-liberal democracy, if such a thing exists. As you point out, they may be taking inspiration from Hungary, Poland, etc. But is there a specific Israeli element to this, which is the occupation? I think you've written that we're getting the evidence that the occupation has corroded Israel's democratic principles. In other words, you can't really separate the kind of liberal democracy that's operating behind the separation wall and the occupation, which then bleeds into the efforts to be a liberal democracy in other respects. The prophecy that a day will come in which the occupation will destroy Israeli democracy was made right after 1967, after the Six Days War, in which Israel seized the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, and of course the Sinai Desert, that it later returned to Egypt. That prophecy was that at the end, these mechanisms that you need to keep in place to control the West Bank and the millions of Palestinians that live there and supply security to Israelis living there or Israelis living within the sovereign state of Israel, these mechanisms will transform themselves into a radical change within the state of Israel. And Israel has been warned by left-wing figures again and again and again, that its democracy would be at stake if it keeps on with occupation. But let me surprise you here. 
there is absolutely no doubt that there was a very sinister influence of occupation on the Israeli democratic soul. But Israel could have stayed and could stay a democracy and maintain what it has today in the West Bank simply because, I remind the people who are listening to us, that there is a Palestinian authority. There were the Oslo Accords. Israel is in the process of having more and more peace agreements with the Arab world. And at the end, there is an understanding within the Israeli public that Israelis do not want to control the lives of Palestinians. And this understanding was shared by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who himself declared that he supports a two-nation state solution for the conflict with the Palestinians. So, no, I don't think it's only about occupation. I think that Israel could have maintained its conflict with the Palestinians and its presence in the West Bank without turning out to be a nationalist, populist regime. And I still think that it is possible. You can look at the Israeli society, its vibrance, the fact that a year and a half ago, we had a government with both a right-wing party and an Arab Islamist party sitting together in government. Now, I know that many critics of Israel are looking at this and they're saying, oh, you know, this moment has come and we have long seen this moment. And actually, Israel has never been for them a democracy. And I, of course, must resist this kind of approach. I think that factually, it's possible for Israel to maintain a conflict with the Palestinian and remain a liberal democracy if it understands that the end game is the end of occupation and Palestinians ruling themselves. So the conflict some are now describing as the most intense internal crisis in Israel, i.e. not wars, that they faced since the foundation of the state in 1948. How do you see it being resolved? Do you think Netanyahu will get his way? Or do you think he'll have to back down? Or is there some other resolution? Unless something very unpredictable is going to happen. And Mr. Netanyahu is going to wake up one morning and say, oh, I've been mistaken. He's not going to climb down and he's going to follow through with these kind of reforms, maybe moderated, watered down, so that he'll be able to at least argue politically that he did something to have some sort of reconciliation. This would not be accepted by the opposition at all. It will not be accepted by the experts or by the protesters in the streets. And then the next move after this passes the Knesset, and they do have the votes right now, the next step would be the Supreme Court. There would be petitions to the Israeli Supreme Court saying, strike down these laws. These laws are illegal. And of course, in Israel, again, unlike in the UK, the Supreme Court has done this before. It has the power to do this. And it will strike down, Gideon, and this I can promise you, if this passes through, the Supreme Court will strike down a lot of this legislation. And then we will have the question, and the question would be whether or not Netanyahu and his government will do as ordered by the Israeli Supreme Court. Will they accept a verdict by the Supreme Court, accepting some petitions, saying that these laws are illegal. This is where we are marching into a full-blown constitutional crisis of the sorts, I have to say, Gideon, that we have not seen 
I think, in democracies in many, many years, if at all, in modern era, in which, you know, you simply do not know. This is just terra incognita. You know, for instance, they're saying, we're going to nominate Arya Derry, who's a very important ultra-Orthodox politician in this country. We're going to nominate him again to the government according to the laws we pass. The Supreme Court is going to say, oh, no, these laws are illegal. So his nomination doesn't exist. Now, he's going to start issuing decrees as a minister. These decrees are going to be illegal by nature. What's going to be the showdown of this? And some people are saying in the opposition side, there is no compromise on democracy. It's not going to be a tenth of a democracy. We're not going to compromise 10% on these issues. We need to press on this issue, bring it to the Supreme Court, have the Supreme Court make its decision, have a constitutional crisis, and then Netanyahu will back down or will have a showdown about the future of this country, you know, liberal democracy or not. What do you think the time frame is? Okay, so in two weeks' time, the government, unless it backs down, which would be a surprise, in two weeks' time, they will have these laws passed through the Knesset and made into the law of the land. Then we'll see petitions to the Supreme Court the same day. The Supreme Court will probably issue decrees saying stop implementation of this legislation until we make a decision. And then we will see a full-blown constitutional crisis in the next couple of months, including during Independence Day. And I suspect that we will see very unfortunate scenes and events in Israel in these months ahead. That was Nadav Isle, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. Please join me again next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.